Chapter Thirty Two, Part Two of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter Thirty Two, Part Two. The Archaic Mammals. This is the name given to the creatures which, in early tertiary time, supplanted the great reptiles in their vacated habitats. They constitute the first mammalian adaptive radiation, but one of short duration, for they were soon to be displaced in their turn by creatures of a higher sort, the so-called modernized mammals. For a while these archaic types served very well, and doubtless, had it not been for a competition which they could not meet, they might have survived for a longer period but there was written over against them the memorable indictment, Thou art weighed in the balances, and found wanting. Defects There are two prime essentials to every creature's adaptation to its environment. It must have safety and food. Hence two principal structures are of paramount importance. Locomotor organs, that it may flee from its enemy or overtake its prey, and efficient teeth, that it may utilize such food as is available, in other words, the two organs whose contact with the environment is most intimate are the feet and the teeth, and these are seen to suffer the most profound changes with the passage of time and the consequent changing of the environment. Not only must these organs be adapted to immediate need, but adaptable to the inevitable changes of conditions which time will bring. Thus it is that by a study of feet and teeth, so much of an animal's life conditions and consequent habits can be deduced. Add to this a structure of which the dinosaurs made but little, but which in mammalian evolution became increasingly important, the brain, and the tale of the requisites for future evolutionary success is complete. It was specifically in these three things that the archaic mammals were deficient. For while size, strength, and physical prowess, arms and armament were theirs in full measure, their feet and grinding teeth were conservative, inelastic, and incapable of meeting new conditions as they arose. Their brain, too, was singularly old-fashioned, generally small, but always relatively undeveloped in comparison with that of modernized mammals of equivalent bulk, especially in the part wherein the intelligence lay. Hence it is not surprising that the career of these forms was brief, and that with rare exceptions they have suffered racial death and vanished as utterly as did the dinosaurs before them classification nature as osborne says deals in transitions rather than in sharp lines we cannot circumscribe the archaic mammals sharply nor be sure as yet that some of them did not give direct descent to certain of the modernized mammals yet the mammals of the basal eocene of both europe and north america are altogether of very ancient type they exhibit many primitive characters such as extremely small brains simple triangular teeth five digits on the hands and feet, prevailing plantigradism. They are to be collectively regarded as the first grand attempts of nature to establish insectivorous, carnivorous, and herbivorous groups, or ungulates, clawed forms, and ungulates, hoofed forms. The ancestors or centers of these adaptive radiations date far back in the age of reptiles. At the beginning of the Eocene we find the lines all separated from each other, but not as yet very highly specialized. The specialization and divergence of these archaic mammals continue through the Eocene period and reach a climax near the top, 
although many branches of this archaic stock become extinct in the lower Eocene. The orders which may be provisionally placed in this archaic group are the following. Marsupialia, Multituberculata, Plagia luacidae, Placentalia, Insectivora, Insectivores not as yet positively identified in the basal Eocene, Teneodonta, Edontates with enamel banded teeth, Creodonta, archaic families of carnivores, Condylartha, primitive light-limbed cursorial ungulates, Amblypoda, archaic, typically heavy-limbed, slow-moving ungulates. This group is full of analogies, but is without ancestral affinities to the higher placentals and marsupials. There are forms imitating in one or more features the modern Tasmanian wolf, thylacinus, the bears, cats, hyenas, civets, and rodents of today, but no true members of the orders primates, rodentia, carnivora, parasodactyla, artiodactyla have been discovered. Of the archaic mammals, the multituberculata have already been sufficiently described, the insectivora are unknown, and the teneodonta unnecessary for our purposes. We will therefore turn our attention to the three remaining groups, of which the first is the creodonta, from the Greek for flesh and tooth. These forms resemble in many details the hoofed condylarthra next to be described, but differ from them chiefly in the skull and teeth, in that they have more the aspect of a true carnivore than the condylars, which were of vegetarian diet. The terminal phalanges, unguals, are also more claw-like, although there are exceptions to this rule, notably in the dog-like dromocyon. The skull of a creodont differs from that of a true carnivore, for while it is always large for the size of the animal, there is a much smaller brain case, thus necessitating a high crest of bone along the midline of the cranium, sagittal crest, to obtain sufficient surface for muscular attachment. There are widely expanded temporal or zygomatic arches for the same purpose. The teeth also differ in not being so perfectly adapted for a flesh diet as in the true carnivores. In the latter, certain cheek teeth are almost always enlarged and modified to form a wonderful shearing device, and these so-called carnassial teeth, from the Latin for flesh, are, when present, invariably the fourth upper premolar and first lower molar, expressed thus, P4 over M1. With the creodonts, the carnassials may not be developed at all, and if they are, are variable and not necessarily, indeed rarely, P4 over M1, and in addition they are rarely confined to a single pair of teeth, but are two or more in number. The creodonts have been divided into at least six distinct families, of which but one probably gave rise to true carnivores, the rest dying out one after another, until by upper Oligocene time none were in existence. The creodonts foreshadow the true carnivores in a number of ways, in that certain of them were bear-like, arctocyon, others dog-like, dromocyon, or otter-like, oxyena, patriophilus, some, like the minks, sinopa, others cat-like, disacus, or resembling hyenas, hyemodon. The last genus is of a special interest, because together with its old-world ally, pterodon, it is the last creodont survivor, existing until the middle Oligocene. Wortman saw, in Patriophilus, a form which might have given rise to the modern sea lions, otteridia, but of this there is some doubt. The condylarthra, 
from the Greek knuckle and joint, were a group of very primitive ungulates, which, aside from the implied differences in diet, paralleled the creodonta closely. For in both groups there was the same generalized type of body with a long, heavy tail and rather stocky, more or less cursorial limbs. There were, however, relatively few of the condylarths, but two families being recognized as against six for the creodonts. They range in time from basal and lower Eocene, but very little is known as yet of their geographical extent. They are not supposed to have given rise to any higher groups of ungulates, but to represent an abortive attempt on the part of nature to produce cursorial hoofed forms. One of them, however, Phenocotus, was hailed by its discoverer, Professor Cope, as the five-toed ancestor of the horse, but this is now known to be impossible as it is too large and too highly specialized in certain directions, although very primitive in others, and also too late in time to be the founder of the great equine lineage. This genus, from the Wasatch beds, ranged in size from a fox to a small sheep. While the canines were tusk-like, they were not large, and the grinding teeth were low-crowned and of simple pattern, suited undoubtedly to a rather succulent herbage, the skull was long and low, with a well-developed sagittal crest, and while that portion of the cranium behind the orbits was relatively long, as with most primitive skulls, the brain case was of very small capacity. The feet are five-toed, semi-plantigrade, and built on a very primitive plan, in that the wrist and ankle bones are serial, that is, placed one above the other, rather than alternating, as in all feet subject to splitting strains. Phenocotus and the earlier Prolegonia represent the family Phenocodontidae, while the other family, Menus Cotheriidae, embraces but a single genus, Menus Cotherium. These forms, while contemporaneous with the Phenocodonts, were more advanced in both tooth structure, for the cuffs of the grinders have begun to assume a crescent shape, such as one finds in the higher odd and even-toed ungulates. The body and tail were long, and the limbs, while long, resemble so much those of the Hyrocoidea of Africa as to cause the inclusion of Meniscotherium in that group by certain authorities. Others have considered the Hyrocoidea to be surviving condylars. There are, however, no very good grounds for such an assumption. The condylarthra are of interest in this way, that they represent or were very similar to what was probably a very widespread group of primitive ungulates, out of which possibly all the other orders of ungulates arose. The genera which we know could not have been the direct ancestors, but they show us the nature of the ungulate ancestry. The amblypoda, from the Greek blunt and foot, or short-footed ungulates, are another group of hoofed forms, among which were some that attained a huge, almost elephantine size, and in spite of a basic primitiveness developed a superficial specialization of a very remarkable sort. Their geologic range is from the basal Eocene throughout the Eocene period, when they, in their turn, suffered extinction. Four families are recognized, of which the two most primitive are the Periptychidae and the Pantolambdidae, both basal Eocene in distribution. Pantolambda, the type of the second family, while undoubtedly an ungulate, shows many points of similarity with the creodonts. It is described as having a head and body somewhat smaller than those of a sheep and much shorter legs. The body and tail had somewhat the proportions of the larger cats, and the skull, as with the condylars, was long and low, with small brain capacity and prominent sagittal crest. 
the limbs were very short and relatively heavy with five spreading toes on each foot Charyphrodon represents the third family and is in many ways a remarkable beast the different species vary in size from a tapir to an ox and thus are the largest forms we have so far considered they were heavy unwieldy animals whose short powerful limbs and spreading feet point to swamp dwelling if not aquatic habits the skull was large and flattened in such a way that no median crest is visible nor are there any indications of horns such as the next genus possessed the canine teeth were developed into huge flaring tusks suggesting those of the swine altogether it was a heavy sluggish brute whose very small brain gives evidence of great stupidity dinoceros unilitherium represents the last family of amblypods and in many ways size up to seven feet in height dentition and horns was by far the most specialized in fact grotesquely so its limbs were pillar-like quite like those of the proboscidea see chapter thirty four and like them an adaptation to carry the creature's great weight the elephant-like characteristics extended also to the body but there the resemblance ceased for the skull was totally dissimilar in that it was extended upward into a series of horn-like prominences these consisted of a pair upon the nose which from their appearance may have borne dermal horns like those of rhinoceroses the second pair were higher with bluntly rounded ends and were probably not sheathed with horn but covered with skin as in the giraffe there was also a third pair massive structures eight to ten inches high which again could not have borne horny sheaths there was a high transverse occipital crest at the hinder end of the skull connecting the posterior pair of horns and giving together with the prominences a unique basin-shaped character to the top of the skull another remarkable feature lay in the greatly developed canine teeth which were curved sabres in some genera and spear-shaped in others and were doubtless important weapons both the tusks and horn prominences were apparently better developed in the male than in the female for their variation constitutes about the only difference seen in certain skulls there is no indication of a proboscis as the nasal bones which are long and prominent in dinoceros are invariably shortened whenever that useful organ develops the molar teeth of dinoceros were very conservative for while one might trace a very marked evolution in the skull and tusks these important organs hardly change at all the brain also was absurdly small for so large a creature the armament of dinoceros may have served a useful purpose but one is constrained to believe that together with a relatively great size it indicates racial senility the extreme of over-specialization attained by a primitive stock. Fate of the Archaic Mammals The archaic mammals, as such, have long since vanished from the earth, and were it not for their remains entombed in the Eocene rocks, we would be unaware that they ever existed. Theirs was a brief span compared with that of the reptilian hordes, and also with that of their mammalian successors. But for a while they throve mightily, until competition with creatures of a better sort became too great for them to bear. That they strove to meet this competition is evident, for certain of the later creodonts, notably Patriophilus and the powerful Harpagolestes, increased materially in bodily size, while the hyenodonts actually increased the bulk of the brain and, as a consequence, were the sole survivors of the group after the close of the Eocene, for, as long ago as 1874, 
Professor Marsh pointed out that the brains of the surviving races are upon the average larger than those of declining races. Competition was doubtless, therefore, a prime cause which led to the extinction of these forms. We have argued racial old age in Dinoceros, but if that be deemed insufficient in itself, we have the noteworthy fact that where evolution of an animal runs to the development of tusks and horns, probably favored by sexual selection, the grinding teeth are apparently neglected and are apt to show arrested development, and bulk is fatal where correlated with inadequate feeding mechanism, and with brain power not adequate to enable the females to defend and care for the young as well as to meet new conditions of life. Osborne. Thus the fate of the archaic mammals was first extinction, and secondly, transmutation of a few, a very few, into higher types. There remains a third possibility, and that is emigration, not of the later but of the earlier sorts, across the southern land bridge into South America, where together with a certain admixture of other stock, possibly African, they may have given origin to the remarkable South American fauna which rose and flourished during the long period of Neogean isolation. Others, passing beyond the limits of South America, may have crossed the Antarctic land bridge into Australia, where as marsupials they still persist. But this cannot be true if we adhere to our premise that the multituberculates only of the marsupials are to be included among the archaic mammals, and further, that they died in basal Eocene time without issue. If, on the contrary, the entire marsupial order is to be considered archaic, the conclusion that they may still be surviving in these remote forms and in the American opossums is tenable. There is a further possibility that the American edentata, sloths, armadillos, and their allies, may have been derived from the teniodonts. If so, the latter also have in a sense survived, although in a much altered state, and only because they likewise found asylum in isolated South America. End of chapter 32